Hey everybody, Ryan here, and you are listening to The Poison Lab. Today, we have another very special episode of Toxicologist vs. the Internet. We welcome on our esteemed guest, Dr. Jillian Theobald, and do our best to tackle some of the unanswered questions about toxicology or drug toxicity on the internet, and then dive into some clinical cases. For those that are just here for the clinical information, the cases will be starting right around minute 41, so feel free to skip ahead. In this episode, we cover quite a few topics, everything from heavy metals to flower petals, the clinical effects of benzodiazepines on TV watching, potential dangers of cavalactones, the patient side of receiving ketamine, and honestly, much, much more. I think it's a great episode. Now, for a few disclaimers. While we try to be as evidence-based as possible in this show, the purpose of it is to have a fun, lively discussion around toxicologic and pharmacologic principles sourced primarily from the warehouses of data in our own brains. So if you happen to identify something that isn't up to date, or maybe we misstated something, please reach out to the show. We'll correct it later. It'll be good learning for everyone. Secondly, it's a great reminder that this show is for educational purposes and not intended to be medical advice. If you have questions about your own healthcare, please reach out to your doctor. Or if you have concerns about poisoning, call 1-800-222-1222 to get 24-7 access to free medical advice regarding poisoning from trained medical professionals. Next, toxicologists frequently manage the toxicities of patients using illicit drugs, and many of the questions on the internet are about illicit drugs. While this provides an excellent venue for us to discuss pharmacologic and toxicologic principles, we are in no way advocating for anyone to use illicit substances. It exposes users to unregulated doses, potential toxicities, and significant contaminants which can cause serious effects. If you or a loved one are struggling with substance use disorder, please call 1-800-662-4357 for access to SAMHSA's 24-7 treatment referral line get the help that you deserve. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Hey folks, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. And today we have another very special episode. It's not one of our normal deep dives into poisonings. We are thrilled to welcome an esteemed guest, and I'm going to say a personal hero of mine, which you'll understand why in just a minute. Dr. Jillian Theobald is an emergency medicine physician, medical toxicologist, associate medical director of Poison Center, and associate professor of emergency medicine. And we are so lucky to be joined by her today uh, for honestly too many reasons. Not only did she get her MD from Rosalind Franklin University, but at the exact same time managed to get her PhD in cellular biology and then went on to complete five years of postgraduate medical training, becoming one of the most amazing emergency medicine physicians and medical toxicologists that I have ever had the opportunity to work with. And despite an incredibly busy clinical schedule, finds the time to help run a poison center, caring for poison patients all throughout the state, uh, as well as just be one of the most hyper-productive people I have ever met. And uh, despite the many accolades that Dr. Theobald has, she still manages to be one of the most humble and wonderful people to be around. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm a little bit of an a-hole, let's be well, honest. Yeah, but in the <laughs> 
in the good ways, in the good, <laughs> in the ways that are fun. So, the, welcome to the show, and thank you very much. We really appreciate it. How are you? Good. 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 I've been uh, in the thick of virtual kindergarten, um, <laughs> and that's been pretty amazing. Not so much. So uh, that's been taking up a lot of my time lately. <laughs> what are what is the 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 uh, curriculum of virtual kindergarten? So it is a Google Hangout for eight hours a day. Um, They actually get virtual gym, which is quite hilarious. Um, And to see my kid, like, you know, doing jumping jacks in my dining room. Um, (laughs) But they, they start out with like, you know, reading and phonics and writing and, um, I had to bribe my child with a lot of gummy bears today. I promised him 16 if he would write me three sentences. Ooh. And, yeah, and, I know. And are these Haribo gummy bears or are we, are we talking? Yes. Oh, of course. Yes. Just then like he got it. mad because I ate the rest of the bag. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just means you have to do more jumping jacks than him. That's right. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, I cannot even fathom the challenges that brings up. So uh, thank you for taking the time out of uh, proctoring virtual kindergarten to join us today on the show. We, we it's greatly... actually my pleasure. I need a break. <laughs> uh, now, the show, as some of the listeners um, have maybe heard in our past episode uh, where um, we had Matthew Stanton on the show with us, is broken up into two segments. Uh, and the name of the show is Toxicologist vs. the Internet. This is our second rendition where uh, we do our very best to answer some of the strange questions that surface themselves on the internet regarding the toxicity of drugs or drug interactions or et cetera. Uh, And then the second part of the show, we jump into um, trying to work through some toxic differentials uh, for some cases that are sourced from the American Association of Poison Control Centers um, fatality reports. And it's, it's good learning. Uh, to to see how some severe poisonings might present themselves. And then hopefully um, a clinician would be able to identify it themselves. Um, but before we go on, before we jump into all the like hardcore toxicology, maybe we could share like your favorite toxicology fact. So do you have a tox aha moment where you're like, wow. No, and that, it's funny because, so I don't remember who I was talking about with this lately, but looking back, like when I chose toxicology, I did it like very calculated in a way because I, well, so I accidentally got pregnant my intern year of my <laughs> emergency medicine residency. And I had my first kid in November um, of my second year. And I was just like trying to survive, like having a kid in residency. Right. Um, and, and I had spent nine years in medical school, like doing an MD and a PhD. And I was like, the F am I doing a fellowship? Like, I don't I want to get a real job. Like I'm tired of being a professional student. Um, and it was right around the time, like when I was coming into the beginning of my third year and I was like, well, I like when all this data was coming out about burnout and emergency medicine physicians being like the most sub- subject to that. And so I started to really think about, am I going to be okay just logging out shift after shift, you know, 10, 15 years from now. And I was really worried I wasn't going to be. And I said, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, 
And then I, I, I just was like, well, all of my, cause I hadn't done my toxicology rotation yet. Cause that was in our third year. Right. Um, and all of my favorite people were in tox and I, uh, my PhD was in cellular biology. And so I really liked like down to the cellular yeah. level. Good fit. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, well, this makes sense. And, um, I, it, it's one of the few fellowships that really expands your scope of practice. And so, um, that was why I liked it. And I think the, the most interesting thing for me about it isn't like a single fact or a single case. Um, but like, I am never surprised by what people do (laughs) or I'm always surprised by what people do. Um, and, and so like, there's nothing beats the stories, nothing beats the, um, you know, the stories that people come up with or what people call us for. Like one of my most favorite, I think we were on shift together where um, we got a phone call from a woman who was a video producer um, producing oh, yeah. a film down in the Amazon. <laughs> she called us from her cell phone and she had these, she had hired these two guys to like drive her or boat her around the wetlands or the river down there. And they would park their boat and they would go off into the rainforest to take videos and they would throw the battery over their shoulder and carry it with them. Um, and she said that this guy started to get burned from the battery acid. The question for us was like, what antibiotics she should buy him at the store? <laughs> so, what do they even have? I know. I know. So like, stories like that. Nothing beats stories like that. And you definitely get some interesting stories. You're you're jogging memories of people calling me because they injected magnesium and they thought they were trying to inject meth. And I don't know. You just hear. <laughs> it starts with the same lever. It's fine. it's okay and that is that is what makes like toxicology so fun and so in spite of being you know like calculating and um more out of fear going into this specialty (laughs) it turned out to be like my most it's probably my most favorite part of my job honestly all right well i think that's great information for anyone who's interested in pursuing medical toxicology as a career uh so thank you And with that, I think we're ready to roll into our next segment. Let's dive into Toxicologist versus the Internet, where we do our very best to answer some of the many questions on the Internet about drugs, drugs, toxicity, and toxicology. Uh, Would you like to ask the first question or would you like me? I don't care. I'm going to ask this question simply because I had never heard of this. And I still don't know that much about it. So the question, this is reddit.com r slash ask drugs. Here's the question. What is it like taking a GABA antagonist? Have any of you ever had beneficial effects from one? Uh, this is a question that I, I was very confused about because I had never heard of a GABA antagonist before. Isn't that like picrotoxin? Well, yeah, there's the, like, I have not heard of Pharmaceutically like, available GABA antagonists because picrotoxin blocks chloride in the ion channel, I believe, right? Uh, prevents it from. I think anything. so. Because that's, I thought that that was what like is often used in the lab, um, like you know, as an antagonist do. for the channel. Yeah, but, that would make a lot of sense. But have you heard of a pharmaceutically available um, no. GABA? At, yeah, neither had I. So I did a little bit of research. And there is this drug called Fasoracetam. What? Yeah. 
Is so, that like the antidote to love a Teresino? Right. And I didn't even know where to find this. It was actually posted by another person on this, on this forum, which is how you know that this is the cutting edge of uh, uh, <laughs> toxicology. We're only, we're, as toxicologists, you're always one step behind the internet in what, in what they're doing. Um, but yeah, a user posted, take a look at Fasiracetam, which acts as a GABA B blocker, very fast and effective, which anytime I hear the words GABA B blocker, that's terrifying to me because it yep. draws up, it, it conjures up baclofen withdrawal to me because uh, that's a GABA B agonist. And now you've got a GABA B blocker. And it turns out that this was actually studied for a certain type of vascular dementia, but it, it, it didn't proved to be effective. So it wasn't approved by the FDA, but now it lives basically as a nootropic. So you can buy it online, Fasiracetam powder, one gram, very I similar to, to nootropic. Uh, right? yeah. uh, nootropic <laughs> meaning was once featured on Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. Or on the Dr. Oz show. <laughs> or on the Dr. But this is really, so uh, you can actually buy this online. It reminds me a lot of like the Fenny butt kind of compounds, just weird stuff that people are getting into that they really shouldn't and probably needs to be more regulated. I couldn't find any case reports of, uh, of any actual overdoses, but being a GABA B antagonist, I feel like I, you would eventually see, I don't know, seizure or just severe like dysautonomia, kind of like GABA B withdrawal. So what would be the like therapeutic benefit of that, especially even in vascular dementia? Mm. So, does it like preferentially block like presynaptic or postsynaptic GABA B, or is it like great question? Not a clue. Also, <laughs> no real, I have zero uh, ability to assess how this would affect vascular dementia. Um, but hmm. somebody else um, brought up ginkgo biloba because um, that is also a GABA an antagonist. So, the Fair role out. of Yep, so here we go. They brought up Ginkgo. It says, the role of GABAergic antagonism in the neuroprotective effects of bilobolide, which I assume is the... <laughs> um, Say that again. Bilobolide. Um, so they were saying that they, they take this GABAergic antagonist, which uh, in Ginkgo, and this is maybe the same theory, which then... Promotes, you know, wakeful, you know, anti-GABA, a little bit of excitatory, but it also causes upregulation of your GABA receptors. So it's a way, they're saying it's a way to, because, you know, it kind of makes sense. Um, if you chronically inhibit stimulation, then you upregulate as opposed yeah. to chronically stimulate, you downregulate. So I thought that was interesting. Maybe there's some, maybe they're trying to upregulate GABA B in some way. I, I don't know. But I just thought it was something I'd never heard about, so... Um, if anybody has a case of Fasiracetam overdose that they'd like to uh, email to us, we'd be thrilled to, to, to hear from you. It is your turn. Okay. I thought this was really interesting um, because this is another thing that I find fascinating is when people try to self-medicate. Um, so this is one of the questions. It says, is it safe to take kava while tapering benzodiazepines? Interesting. Yeah. Oh, man. So the follow-up question, this was like a clarifying one. It says, since kava acts indirectly on benzodiazepine receptors, is it safe or maybe even helpful to use it while going through 
withdrawal slash a taper. All right. So full disclosure, the mechanism of kava is uh, escaping me. I'm assuming it's acting indirectly as an agonist and maybe not an antagonist, I would hope. In which case, yeah, I wouldn't recommend using an antagonist compound. Um, I, I'm going to assume kava is, is an agonist. Can you confirm that? Is it? <laughs> well, so kava is a plant, right? right? And most plants don't have, you know, a single uh, active yeah. compound. Yeah, usually there's a lot of things within it. So the mechanism action of kava or some of, there's like 18 different, um, you know, lipid soluble compounds in there that can cause, have effects. And some of them will, they inhibit the reuptake of dopamine and norepinephrine, but then they modulate the benzodiazepine receptor. And there's like, I don't know, 10 or 12 different proposed uh, mechanisms. So um, what that modulation is, nobody really knows. Um, we don't know if this is good or bad modulation. <laughs> correct. But there is, so there was a Cochrane review that looked at um, kava for the treatment of anxiety and it actually outperforms placebo. So there yeah. is some benefit for um, taking kava for anxiety. The interesting thing though, is that to the, there's different preparations that are made from the plant. Um, the roots and the root stems are where most of the um, the kava, like the the beneficial, you know, the psychoactive components are. Um, and then uh, up higher up is where in the leaf part is where they're they're not even barely there at all. And then there are some toxic compounds in the leaves. So, oh, that's interesting because usually in plants, a lot of them we think of the roots as having many of the yeah of, of most yeah. of the toxic components. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, so there was, it was actually taken off the market in the early two thousands because there was like 70 plus reports of hepatotoxicity. Wait, uh, copper but, was taken off the market? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like in, I would say maybe like five or six years ago or more than that, it was put back on in some places, uh, because, uh, they think that the reason the hepatotoxicity was more from like aberrant preparations where it was more from like the actual stem of the plant, not the root stem and the root. Ah. Um, and, and so they think it was from that, but, um, but so what modulation means, I don't know. Oh, I'll, I, I will tell you this. So the modulation doesn't affect benzodiazepine binding. So they looked at flu nitrazepam, I think is how you say it. They looked yeah. at binding of that and coveted and affected either way. Interesting. So it doesn't change the binding of benzodiazepines to the receptor, um, but it modulates the receptor somehow to make people less anxious because um, that's really? the clinical effects of it. That would make me think that it, similar to benzos, enhances chloride permeability um, if it has an anxiolytic effect. I, I, so what do we think? Like, what do you think that it would be safe or even helpful? I well, think it I, actually could prolong the withdrawal and taper phase. Well, this is like, think? I, I think it probably would because the whole purpose of the taper is to slowly reduce stimulus so that you can re-upregulate your GABA receptors. Yeah. So if you're continually stimulating, you're probably going to prolong your, your taper because it's going to take longer to upregulate. 
But this is also just what never makes sense to me about how we treat alcohol withdrawal. Like you're in withdrawal because you've downregulated all your GABA receptors with alcohol. And then how do we treat you? We continue to stimulate your GABA receptors with benzodiazepines. Like that, that's not going to facilitate you re-upregulating your GABA receptors. Uh, but, you know, it's you know they're non-hepatotoxic, and you can do a more controlled taper um, of your dosage. So I understand, you know, and we don't want you to seize or anything like that. But that's why I, I I'm a big fan of adjunct therapies like ketamine or clonidine um, on top of benzos, so that we can sort of stop pressing so hard on the GABA receptor pedal and allow you to um, uh, re-upregulate your your uh, GABA receptors. But but anyways, as for kava, or if it enhances chloride permeability, then it probably would be safe. Um, but you're just using another GABA agonist to treat a GABA agonist. And yeah. Well, and I think, I think too, like, so safety is always an issue, right? Anytime you're having these plant-based extracts that you're ingesting, cause you don't know dose, right. you don't know which of the 18 cavalactones um, you're trying to isolate and utilize. Mm-hmm. And then you also don't know exactly how that was extracted from the plant. Like, did they actually use the proper part of the plant? Are you putting yourself at risk for hepatotoxicity, which we know is a possibility based on prior case reports? And most of these herbal extracts or supplements are not regulated. Um, and and so I think this, the safety issue isn't necessarily like at the mechanism of action or pharmaceutical issue it's more of you don't know what you're actually getting are you actually getting the kava <laughs> probably or, exactly you're probably getting 40 yeah. percent diazepam a little bit of goat thyroid and maybe like <laughs> one little ground up piece of kava so with that absolutely and that's why you know yeah. you got to be very careful about what's going in uh, any yeah. non-fda regulated substance that's going into the body and yeah. if you're on a taper it's clearly in uh, you know, you're in a relationship with a healthcare provider who's yeah. doing this taper and that kava should be, you know, if you're using something medicinal, that should be as well on the radar uh, and not something you're taking clandestinely. And suddenly you have, you know, a bump in your LFTs and we don't know why. So. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. Good question. I have not looked into kava recently. Me either, which is why I picked the question. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, right? Um, well, this one's, this one was just funny. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. This one is not even that pharmacologic, but it did bring up a good point for me that I just find fascinating. It says, K hold eight months ago and life hasn't felt the same since question mark. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the, the maybe they got their depression improved. Right. So this guy says, Hello, Redditors. I've been using ketamine recreationally for probably three years. I never built a crazy tolerance because usage was always spaced out every two to three months. K-holing was never really the objective. Uh, Eight months ago, I went into the deepest K-hole I've ever personally experienced, dipping into a new version of understanding which reality was the correct one. Uh, The thought of me traveling between bodies opened a sort of Pandora's box for me. Nothing really matters. Life's not even real. It's just how we perceive it in our minds, and everyone is perceiving it differently interesting and i do i do think there is a degree of truth to that at least in that uh each individual's biased perception plays a large uh, role in how we interpret the reality around us everyone has a little bit of a different reality so i guess there, there is some insight to that i think um and then basically says uh my question is have any other psychedelic users had thoughts like this and how do you counteract these thoughts anxiety inducing emotions 
so I think this is K-hole induced nihilism and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for this person that they're experiencing that. Um, I don't recommend people use unregulated psychedelics because uh, it can trigger probably some pretty severe uh, psychological trauma. Um, but this is why I bring this up. This is a drug that we give to people every single day. All the time. All the time. My favorite. I'm going to splint your fracture. I'm going to give you a little bit of ketamine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. But we, we give people a, a lot of bit of ketamine. We dissociate people all the time <laughs> in the ER. And how many of them, I mean, I'm talking five to 10 patients a day coming in and just going to another realm of existence and then coming back. And I can't tell you the amount of times afterwards, one of those sedations, they're like, I love you guys. Oh, my life is amazing now. I would love to see like a, a quality of life study like 30, do a, a, a short form 36, like six months after they come to the ER for a reduction, if they got ketamine versus another drug and see if this okay. is some kind of like a lasting. So this just came up today about like the S-ketamine or the desketamine that mm. they're doing like single time doses. Yeah, the and um, I, I was like, what, I wonder what dosing they're using. And so I looked at the S-ketamine dosing um, and it's a single dose of 56 milligrams. And I was like, for me, that's almost one milligram per kilogram. That's a big dose. You know, it's interesting. There's, I've seen the the range of reactions, um, like where patients are like, don't ever give me that again. I don't feel right. I don't feel weird. I have people mm -hmm. who hallucinated moths in their room. Yeah. Um, I had people, I had a family, a, a son and a wife come out and they're like, we have never seen my father so happy. What did you give him? He has been like unhappy and depressed for years. And like in the last 10 minutes, he's been like joyful. Like what happened? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I, it, it is wild. Uh, also, I just saw the brand name for S-ketamine. Spravato. <laughs> that just, that makes me less depressed already. Spravato. Yeah. Sounds like a car. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I do bring this up because yeah, uh, uh, people have a very wide, and some people have um, emergence and very severe negative reactions to it, but it is gaining an entire, it's FDA approved for severe treatment refractory depression. And similar to other actually psychedelics that are used under medical supervision, psilocybin has a lot of data for use in severe, uh, but that's a complete other mechanism. That's a tryptamine versus this is a, an MDA receptor antagonist. But Clearly, there's, there is some kind of an effect that is lasting with these. Um, and I'm only bringing this you question up. The, I wonder if you get the same effect with, like, dextromethorphan in, like, the high, high doses. Like, when they get the third or right. fourth plateau. The, and get the, the, the fourth plateau. The, the Skittlers, yes, who are taking, or Robotrippin. <laughs> that, that is, uh, and treating their depression at the same time, apparently. Or risking, you know, torsades. But same, same diffy. Uh, yeah, but it, it would be in theory the same. And they both are. So dextromethorphan, actually, there's a great study from my favorite journal ever, um, the Journal of Scandinavian Anesthesiology. <laughs> and uh, they did this study where, because ketamine, we use it for neuropathic pain all the time. So they were like, hey, you know, dextromethorphan is an MDA receptor antagonist. Let's take all these ED patients and give them 270 milligrams of dextromethorphan and then discharge. Oh, <laughs> shut up. Really? <laughs> yeah, but it worked to treat the pain. I got to imagine quite a few of them dissociated. Um, I don't know if that's the route I would go, but 
<laughs> so, so I do bring this up because I read a great piece a while ago. It, it's actually um, a, a writer who has severe treatment refractory depression and uh, was one of the first people to do an intravenous ketamine clinic for depression in Texas. And he wrote about each one of his dissociative experiences and he's a very gifted writer. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's fascinating to me. Like he really describes what he goes through each time he got ketamine in this like IV uh, controlled setting under medical supervision. Um, and the fact that this is kind of what we're putting patients through in the ER sometimes when we're just doing a reduction is mind blowing. So I'll, I'll put this guy's story in the show notes. I thought it was really well written. And I think it's something we don't think about a lot when we're giving these people uh, this truly interesting drug with a, a lot of different effects, maybe some that we're not expecting when we're trying to treat their acute pain. Um, I have an equal one that I thought was funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why do benzos reduce boredom? I clicked on this because I was like, why are they, what? <laughs> and so uh, it goes, I remember getting a huge ton of diazepam prescribed to me when flying to America. 200 tablets of two milligram tablets. You need I had no idea. Diazepam like, to fly to America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I had no idea what benzos were or how addictive they could be. So it's not a case of preconceived notion affecting my experience. I just thought these were sleepy pills. When I came back, I still had enough tablets and took them. I found that I could just stay and watch TV and not get bored. I notice now how that's unusual. I've never been able to do that as an adult, but only as a kid. I couldn't sit down and watch something for 40 minutes without changing the channel. Um, but for some reason, benzos reduce boredom. Wow. I, I, and then the I question is, what's the pharmacology of this? <laughs> this is also a great reminder to prescribers that you should not give people more uh, drugs than they need. This is why we use like short courses of opioids. Otherwise, uh, they just start taking them to watch TV, and that's really not what they're recommended for. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wonder if it just, you know, sometimes when you're just so tired, like when mm. I'm so, so tired, like I go out and run like 10 miles or something, and I come home, and like it's just easy for me just to sit there because I'm yeah. too tired to think of anything else, and too tired to like, you know, go up and get this and go and do that and think about this. And, um, and I just, I don't know. I wonder if that is like similar to taking a bunch what? of two milligram diazepam tablets. I think it is. I, this is going to send us down a rabbit hole. So I'm a very big mindfulness believer and observing of my own thoughts and et cetera and whatever, because I'm very bad at it in general. So I have to practice it sometimes. And you know, you'll notice one thing is probably anx anxiolysis. People don't like to sit down and watch TV because they have this weird nagging feeling of like, yeah, I should be doing something else, right? Or like, yeah, hey, yeah. I could be productive. Yeah, right. It's probably, this probably, you know, quells that little thought process. Or you'll be sitting down and then 15 other thoughts will come in and you're not, you know, focused and present in the moment. And uh, it's called, I think it's called your default mode network is how some it's referred to, but you know, all the different thoughts that are rushing through your brain at any moment. Hmm. And this kind of shuts that down and probably lets you just be more focused on exactly what's going on in front of you. That's the, uh, that's my, my Zen take on the pharmacology here. No real science on that one. Part uh, of me also thought that maybe he just, or she just needs to find better TV. That's true. Cause there's some great shows that you do not need benzodiazepines to enjoy. <laughs> well, and there are some horrible 
show. My daughter made us watch this Italian Christmas show that had English dubbed over. Like it was oh, wow. so bad. And it was like the Italian Christmas witch. <laughs> That's very bad. All right. Here's a good one. This one is actually talks and not just us talking about random subjects. So giving the listeners what they've been waiting for. Are beta and alpha blockers safe for long-term use with stimulants? I'm going to assume he's inquiring about prescribed drug regimens. Uh, if he is not, I would hope that they're not uh, trying to mix alpha and beta blockers with illicit uh, stimulants as that sounds very dangerous. We would not recommend anyone use illicit stimulants. Uh, the question itself says, I know stimulants aren't good for the heart long-term, but do they cause any horrible reactions or anything with beta alpha blockers? I read about one person who OD'd on cocaine and propranolol, but people are saying that's just a myth perpetuated by an anecdote. Start at the beginning. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I think what they're getting at here is the cocaine chest pain conundrum. Uh, cocaine both uh, releases our stimulant or catecholamine neurotransmitters, and those both vasodilate and vasoconstrict. Um, and if you give somebody... Um, a beta blocker, specifically one with beta-2 blocking properties, you block the vasodilatory properties of cocaine, and you get unopposed alpha stimulus. So you actually just constrict all your vessels, and it can lead to coronary ischemia. Um, so that's why the traditional teaching is to not treat cocaine chest pain with beta blockers. Uh, now, stimulants release kind of the same things. They release your nor norepinephrine, dopamine, epinephrine, or prevent their reuptake, or et cetera. Um, so let's say you're chronically on, uh, uh, you know, uh, dextroamphetamine and you're on labetalol for, say, treatment of hypertension. Is that safe together? Which is not a great hypertension drug, but, or they're on Corag for heart failure. Then they shouldn't be on Adderall. <laughs> I like, don't, honestly, I don't like. <laughs> I don't disagree, but believe me, as a pharmacist, there are many people with inappropriately optimized medication lists. And I understand that. I mean, I think there's way too many people that are on that. Yeah. I've seen so many people come in like with these tacky dysrhythmias and the only medication they're on is Adderall or Vyvanse or whatever. Oh, yeah. And they're like, you know, in their twenties and thirties. Well, one thing we can at least address here is his statement. Well, I heard somebody overdosed on cocaine and propranolol, but I heard that was just a myth uh, propagated by an anecdote. But that is absolutely not true. This is one of the things that we actually have data for. And this is a great time to shoehorn in a landmark trial that anyone interested in talks or EM should know about. And that is going to be Potentiation of cocaine-induced coronary vasoconstriction by beta-adrenergic blockade, published in uh, Annals of Internal Medicine in 1990 uh, by a Dr. Lang. And this is just a wild trial because what they did was take people who were stable and had a little bit of chest pain uh, and who were going under a left heart catheterization anyways, um, and essentially they randomized you to either uh, to receiving intranasal cocaine, two megs per kilo, um, or saline right before undergoing catheterization. And then when they were in there, they injected intracoronary propranolol. So I don't know how they got this approved for IRB. You have people who already have chest pain, and then you're going to give them cocaine and then shoot beta blockers into their heart. So this is truly a cowboy study. So props to you, sir. Um, and I hope everyone turned out okay. Um, 
But basically, uh, the patients who got cocaine and propranolol at the same time had more significant coronary vasoconstriction, demonstrating that propranolol was increasing uh, the amount of vasoconstriction that occurred by blocking the beta-2 effect. However, propranolol is kind of a unique beta blocker in that it's beta-1 and beta-2 blocker. There are drugs like labetalol that also have alpha blockade and would not cause this unopposed alpha constriction. And this has actually also been shown in a very similar study done three years later where they took patients getting a uh, left heart catheterization, gave them cocaine, and then gave them labetalol. And labetalol did not increase the amount of vasoconstriction you saw with cocaine compared to those who just got saline. So the authors of that original propranolol trial, as well as a few others, have come out saying that it's probably safe to use non-selective beta blockers that have both beta and alpha blockade. But this is still kind of hotly contested. We don't have a lot of large data. It's all based off a lot of these catheter studies or animal studies. Uh, So we do know it's probably going to worsen constriction if you're using a beta-1 or beta-2 selective beta blocker. And that could, could cause some decreased coronary blood flow. But if you're using one with alpha blockade, I've even seen some reviews of how to deal with uh, stimulant toxicity actually say that labetalol and carvedilol are, are safer. Um, and I'll put the links to all three of these studies, the review uh, for amphetamine toxicities, uh, as well as the intracoronary studies in the show notes. I have had a case when I was rotating as a resident in the CI, a cocaine uh, user who had a myocardial infarction. They came out right after you have an MI, usually uh, they had stenting done. And usually we want to start beta blockade and reduce oxygen demand, but they were all worried because he was cocaine positive on your drug screen, which is a whole other thing. That just means he did cocaine, not not cocaine. But we ended up going with labetalol just because it had alpha blockade um, alongside it. So it, in theory, also prevent coronary vasoconstriction. So I thought that was an interesting case and a good good way to shoehorn in a classic landmark study. Uh, you know, for this person's question, we don't really have a good answer. Beta blocker, alpha blocker might be better than beta blocker alone based off animal data. In terms of risk of ischemic coronary vasoconstriction, um, in terms of other cardiac outcomes, I have no idea. I don't know why you're trying to take stimulants. So if they're not prescribed, please do not. Um, if you're in the unfortunate situation where you're on a stimulant and also have to be on other drugs that might interact, well... That's a great reminder that this isn't medical advice and you should be talking to your PCP. Um, <laughs> do we have another question or should we jump into cases? I have one more. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let's do it. Um, Cause I had to, I had to figure out what this was. Can I take blue chew and Fenibut on the same day? All right. First off you said Fenibut and I'm sad because I hate that compound. Uh, Fenibut. <laughs> For what people don't know, is Russian baclofen. You buy it on the internet. <laughs> it, 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 uh, maybe 10 to 30 times less potent as baclofen, but people take it 100-fold times the dose. So, uh, And they usually get a, addicted to it because it's a GABA agonist, and then you get GABA down regulation, GABA B specifically. And uh, the withdrawal is incredibly difficult to manage. Uh, with not a lot of evidence for how to do it. And benzos, barbiturates, and baclofen are, are typically employed in trying to get control of people. So funny, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead right now and say, no, it's not safe because you're taking funny, but in the first place, what is blue chew? Uh, I'm going to hypothesize that that's PCP. Is it PCP? No. no. What blue pills do you know that oh. are out there? 
They chew them? I'm just <laughs> I mean, well, you know what? Viagra. <laughs> yeah, I got to assume this is sildenafil. So this is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Um, actually, they generally don't have a lot of drug interactions, and they wouldn't have one with. Uh, so this is Viagra. Um, they do have like two or three very important ones, but overall, there's not a lot. So one, uh, Viagra, you want to avoid with other nitrates um, or people who are taking like nitroglycerin uh, for, you know, an angina or anything like that. Because phosphodiesterase is the enzyme that um, metabolizes CGMP, uh, which is what basically nitric oxide produces. And CGMP is pretty much what dilates your blood vessels. So if you're on a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, uh, you will not break down CGMP. And if you take a nitrate, you will increase CGMP production and you get a synergistic vasodilation and hypotension. And that's why you're not supposed to take a nitrate within 24 to 48 hours of certain Viagra, Cialis, all those good guys. Um, but baclofen, or sorry, well, Fenibut, I guess I wouldn't hypothesize there to be really any interaction there except for maybe the fact that the Fenny butt is not FDA regulated. So it could be 50% nitroglycerin and we would have no idea. <laughs> but, uh, probably. Uh, I would say probably is the answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah, probably. My next question is why are you on Fenny butt? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Stop it. Stop being stupid. <laughs> All right. That was a good one. I like that. Um, I had some more fun ones about amphetamines, but we talked enough about speed and ketamine. And All right. So we're going to move on into the next segment, and we're going to do some cases. Um, so one of us is going to read a case of a fatal poisoning um, to the other without revealing what the poison is. And the other can work through their differential. If at any time you have questions about the case, you can stop, ask questions, or kind of you know, if you want to talk out what you're thinking at the moment, feel free to pause me. Um, and hopefully this will give other listeners a good idea of the kind of things um, that might present in this pattern or how we might rule in or out different things. So, scenario. A 22-year-old was found on the ground after slitting wrists and jumping from a second-story balcony. EMS found oral bleeding and was unable to establish an airway during transport. Patient has a past medical history of bipolar disorder, previous suicide attempts. In the emergency department, his blood pressure is 135 over 80, heart rate 120 to 140, setting 70 to 86% on room air. His temperature is normal at 36.4. Initial laboratory demonstrates uh, normal sodium chloride, potassium. His bicarb is 21. He does not have an anion gap. Um, his BUN is 15 and his creatinine is 1.4. He has a glucose of 215, an elevated white blood cell count at 19, um, and his INR is 1.3. In the ED, blood was suctioned from the airway prior to intubation, and a gastric tube returned blood after it was placed. What's on his med list? Nothing on the med list. We have no, med, no meds on his list. Um, 
I can say, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I can't say. So a patient <laughs> jumped out of a <laughs> slit wrist, jumped out of a second story window, was found with blood in the, in the mouth, uh, couldn't get an airway in the field, showed up to the ER. Essentially, normal vitals, low bicarb, uh, he's tachycardic. Um, and those were like an immediate BMP. So, what you know, we don't know how things were evolving. He was intubated and got a ton of, of copious blood out of the OG tube they dropped after intubation. Hmm. I wonder if he swallowed what he slit his wrists with. There is no foreign objects on CT, but I will say CT demonstrated pneumomediastinum, hmm. right lower lobe pulmonary aspiration, extensive intraperitoneal hemorrhage consistent with esophageal and gastric perforation. He must have had a caustic ingestion as well. Um, Drano, extra strength. <laughs> I think that's the ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Acute oh, alkali drain cleaner, which he drank before slitting the wrist and jumping off the balcony. Hmm. And Guy was serious. Yeah. So just like you said, obviously this was a caustic based off of um, his esophageal and gastric perforation, which could, you could get something like that from a foreign body, but it probably wouldn't be global. Um, but yeah, he had pneumomediastinum, extensive intraperitoneal hemorrhage. And so of course, this is what I couldn't tell you. The patient received tranexamic acid and blood products, although maybe that wouldn't, that wouldn't really give it away. He was just very bleedy. I think he was in DIC from bleeding. Uh, so mm. like a coagulative, mm -hmm. consumptive coagulopathy. Um, surgical exploration revealed extensive liquefactive necrosis of nearly all internal organs, which were judged non-survivable. That's aggressive. Yeah. So he melted the inside of his gastric tract and chewed all of his internal organs. That is so sad. I, uh, I feel bad for that. But... It brings up the liquefactive necrosis of alkalis as opposed to the coagulative necrosis of, of acids. Um, soap, as we know, is made out of a polar head and a lipophilic tail. The lipophilic tail kind of surrounds fat and grease, and the polar head gets is a hydroxyl group that gets dissolved in water. So you make soap by adding a base, which has a hydroxyl group, to a fatty compound like you know, human tissue or possibly uh, vegetable oil. I used to make soap at home. It was kind of fun. Um, what? Yeah. I, I have a, Why? I, have a, I don't know. I have like a little Ochem set. I used to make Did you watch uh, Fight Club and then decided you wanted to do that? No, I did watch Fight Club and I did think I was edgy, but it's not why. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was... Uh, it was pretty cool. It was fun. You make little globules. Yeah, it was just fun. I used to make sodium acetate and stuff like that. Um, but so if you add a base to your body, which has made a large amount of your phospholipid bilayer of your cells, which is fat, you siphonify your tissue. Um, and it just causes deep tissue burns because you're able to continually penetrate through more tissue. So kind of sad, but uh, good, great spot on an uh, in alkaline ingestion. Bad outcome. Okay. JD? Yep. Okay. So a 31-year-old female was hospitalized with a two-week history of abdominal pain, painful, two weeks. two weeks, painful peripheral neuropathy, 
new onset hypertension. Thallium. <laughs> Is it thallium? <laughs> oh, wait, keep going, keep going. No. Did you, you see really this No. Really? She had high blood pressure and elevated LFTs. Hmm. I, I mean, that one. So abdominal pain, chronic neuropathy. It could be arsenic. Right. It could be pretty much any heavy metal. It absolutely could. Um, I just guessed. <laughs> sure. So, all right, all right. You know, the hypertension. So that doesn't really, that doesn't ding with these. Hypertension actually can be pretty common after mercury okay. exposures. Um, especially inorganic mercury because it can cause yeah. kidney disease and then lead right. to high blood pressure. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, no, but so like painful peripheral neuropathies, that's pretty common in any sort of heavy metal exposure, like right. arsenic poisoning, uh, mer you know, mer well, mercury's not necessarily, but you can get even lead poisoning causes peripheral neuropathies. Right. Although that's more motor based than mm -hmm. sensory based, but, um, Valium, yeah. I always hear the, the dying back neuropathy. That's like the. Yeah. So do you know the triad of thallium poisoning? So thallium, you have neuropathy. You have mm -hmm. alopecia. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most effective hair removal agents known to man. Something about constipation. Well, it's alopecia, neuropathy, and an upset spouse or roommate, I thought was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um Thallium is actually really interesting because it is a common um, murder weapon. It's a very uh, uh, common way to kill somebody uh, or poison somebody, which um, there's actually some really great cases. There's an MMWR report from, I think it's Israel um, or Iraq, uh, where at a soccer club, a cake was poisoned um, by thallium. And it was sent to like a board of directors meeting and they uh, ended up not eating the cake. Um, but two members of the board of directors cut it in half and took it home. And like, yeah. And so all their families ate it and wow. a couple people. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Like a child died. And, and then there was another great case that uh, the New York, the people from New York published where um, this neighbor was angry with these girls that lived in the same apartment complex and he injected thallium into some marzipan balls and then sent it to them. Mm -hmm. um, and four of the girls ate it, but really only two of them got sick. And in the case report, they had a uh, x-ray of the marzipan balls, which was kind of fun. Oh, wow. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So... So um, what what happened with it? Well, so what's the third? It's the neuropathy, the alopecia, and then the abdominal stuff. And abdominal. I feel like thallium, I don't know why this is dinging in my brain, but I've heard it's more constipating compared to a lot of the other ones cause like hemorrhagic gastritis with acute right. ingestion. Right. This one is more. So lead and, lead and thallium are different. They cause abdominal pain. It's more colicky abdominal pain and it's typically right. associated with constipation. Yeah. Lead um, illness. Yeah, but the rest of the heavy metals or metals are more um, like uh, cholera-like or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. Um, uh, can we hear the rest of this case? Should she get Prussian yeah. blue and all the good stuff? Yeah, well, so so anyway, she comes in and they don't know what's going on with her because all she has is abdominal pain, neuropathy, hypertension, and elevated LFT. They wrote transaminitis, but I'm not going to say that word. Yeah, that is a sin. Her only past medical history was PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm. Labs were 
pretty fine. Her creatinine was 1.2. Her AST was 170. ALT was 381. Hmm. Her renal ostracide and MRI were fine. She got more and more lethargic um, and got ended up getting transferred to a tertiary care center after a couple of day, a couple of weeks. Um, and when she arrived, she had garbled speech, was difficult to awaken. She was developing alopecia at that point mm-hmm. and a skin rash. And then her encephalopathy got worse. She was intubated. Yeah. Um, her LP was positive for HSV1, so herpes simplex 1, and she was treated with IV acyclovir, and then she had a pretty impressive workup. She had ascending areflexia with Hmm. EMG-proven motor predominant peripheral axinopathy. She even had a brain biopsy. And on day 16, her urine thallium was crazy high. Wow. She started on dialysis. Hour? Or um, just a spot? That was a spot. And okay. then the next day they did a 24-hour. Interesting. Um, it, was, it was like greater than their detection limit. Did they do um, a blood too? I'm always, I think yeah. this just throws everyone off. It's like, you know, when yeah. do you do blood? When do you do urine? But blood um, for acute, you know, and then it distributes, right? And tw- better exposure is 24-hour. Right. Yeah. In general, for most heavy metals, aside from lead, um, it's best to do a 24-hour urine yeah. collection. Right. Um, so they did uh, hemodialysis, multidose activated charcoal, and then they finally were able to get Prussian blue three days later, and they ended up giving it for 16 days. Wow. Um, patient never recovered. And then they did comfort measures. Man. And they don't know what the source was. No, Really? Mm-hmm. She lived alone? Yeah. That's tough. That's tough. Mm-hmm. Dialysis, MDAC, and Prussian blue. Yeah, what else can you do? I think the damage was done. And it's, I always think it's interesting with thallium for multi-dose activated charcoal because you usually learn that there's no benefit of charcoal in metals, but this is one where there's some enterohepatic recirculation and maybe you're just like pushing the bile further down the tract and keeping it from <laughs> getting reabsorbed. But mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good one. Yeah, that. alopecia, abdominal <laughs> pain, neuropathy, and mad roommates. Very good. Okay. I got a special one cooked up just for you. Bring it. A 51-year-old male presented to the emergency department with sore throat and vomiting after he ingested a drink given to him by his girlfriend. It was a liquid mixed with another chemical. He was treated and released, but the sore throat and vomiting persisted. And after eight days, he developed new onset shortness of breath. Then... Four days after the development of shortness of breath, he presented to the emergency department again. So this is now 12 total days from exposure uh, and four days since he developed uh, shortness of breath. So vitals on admission, blood pressure 132 over 75, heart rate 96, respiratory rate 21, setting 90% on 65% FiO2. Uh, Labs from admission, BUN 74, creatinine 2.9. 
He does have a past medical of chronic kidney disease and methamphetamine usage. Physical exam, he had no GI symptoms. Um, it's noted he had no chemical burns um, and nothing else abnormal. Uh, so the patient on admission was treated for community-acquired pneumonia with antibiotics. And What did his chest x-ray show? Chest x-ray was consistent with pulmonary fibrosis and pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did require intubation on it at this time. Uh, so right away, pretty much when he represented. I don't uh, want it is. <laughs> Would you like to run through some differential? No, I know what it is. Keep going. All right, all right. I'll keep going. Uh, after intubation, he was not improving. They did a CT 10 days later of the patient's chest, which demonstrated ground glass opacities and and severe bilateral lower lobe infiltrates with mild emphysema. (laughs) He remained intubated on propofol, became hypertensive, febrile, on antibiotics, and he died 28 days following exposure. Paraquat. (laughs) Yes, this is paraquat. Paraquat. Paraquat's super interesting. Um, but it's really weird that if this was a U.S. case, was, well, yeah. we don't really know, right? Because um, it's not. That's true. It's, it's an herbicide, but it's not utilized here or sold in the U.S. or available in the U.S. So, um, but I was initially was like, what did he drink? And then trying to think of a delayed uh, respiratory poison. Um, there's not a lot of them. And usually the delayed part is like 24 to 48 hours, not like mm-hmm. a week later. So that's usually um, inhalation, not ingestion. Too. Right. Right. So yeah. Well, then oxygen makes it worse because it right. just drives the free radical, you know, pathway of, uh, destruction. Right. So for the listeners, this is a, uh, a herbicide of near mythical legend within the toxicology community that uh, it's a uh, massive free radical producer. It's called a bipyridyl. Basically it makes a ways into your organs and just cycles electrons around crushing all cellular machinery around you, uh, generating reactive oxygen species. And it's one of the poisons where oxygen can make it worse uh, because you're increasing free radical oxygen production. Hallmark toxicity being, that you can actually have very delayed toxicity from it. Uh, you see multi-system organ failure. Treatments are usually, there's a million different things that have been looked at, antioxidants. Prednisone and cyclophosphamide are, are two, I know, that kind of get looked at. In this case states, on day 23, the treating team was informed of the history of paraquat exposure, but prednisone and cyclophosphamide were not started due to concern for infection. So that's why they didn't do that. Stupid. And there's basically, there's like a paraquat nomogram out there. And it's basically really? like, yeah, and it's basically like, no matter where you end up on the chart, you're going to die. So it does, just, it's yeah. a very lethal poison. And yeah. they do note here, GI, no GI burns, although I don't think they look for it. But yeah, it can be, I think, a little caustic as well, possibly. I, I wonder know. what happened to his girlfriend. I don't know. But yeah, this could have been just a simple mistake. Doubtful. Oh. Oh, so here's the autopsy finding. Lungs had diffuse fibrosing process with gross obliteration of the normal architecture. Wow. Microscopic evaluation demonstrated obliteration of alveolar spaces by fibroblastic perforation, thickened septae containing fibrosis, um, and then extravasated red cells and hemoceridin deposition. Uh, 
There were tracheal and tongue ulcerations. So he did have, well, he was also intubated for a long time, but I see. Yeah. Okay. Do we have another case? I do. I thought this was more interesting from a treatment standpoint. Yeah. 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 We should talk about treatment but, too. All right. You're right. So this is a 70-year-old female patient. Mm -hmm. She was at an outpatient surgical center for hemorrhoidectomy. Oh, boy. Yeah. So she ended up developing VTAC after getting a local anesthetic. Her past medical history is hypertension, coronary artery disease, hyperlipidemia, and anal carcinoma. Her blood pressure was 180 over 130. Her rate was 140. She was in VTAC. Her lungs on exam had pulmonary edema. Mm. So well, in the yeah. ED, she was intubated. Okay. They gave her metoprolol and esmolol. Huh. She was still sinus tachycardia, a heart rate of the 140s to 150s. They started a nitroprusside infusion. What? She became bradycardic, went into VFib, had a PEA arrest, and then died. All right. Well, I have multiple questions. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't get bicarb or lipid? Nope. Okay. So she went in for a hemorrhoidectomy, presumably got a local anesthetic, which is going to be either probably lidocaine or, or bupivacaine, perhaps. Um, these are class one sodium channel blockers, which we would know are going to delay sodium currents and cause widening of our QRS. And thus, you're going to have a wide QRS tachycardia. Normally, when we have VTAC, in her case, she would be considered, I guess, I don't know much about her physical exam, but she has a good blood pressure, a very good one. Scary one. Um, so I guess you could maybe classify her as stable mono. I'm assuming it was monomorphic VTAC, in which case your options would be shocking. Um, you could consider adenosine, procainamide, or amiodarone. But in this case, a tox-induced wide complex tachycardia, you're not going to use an antiarrhythmic. Um, usually, we're not going to use like a sodium channel blocker to treat a sodium channel blocker. So uh, in these cases, we usually try to overwhelm the sodium channel blockade with sodium. So she never received any hypertonic sodium of any kind? Nope. Okay. Uh, and she wasn't ever shocked. Mm -mm. Go back to the beginning where you said presumably. Uh, she got... Okay. Presumably she got... Presumably okay. she got I, a local yeah. anesthetic. So did she not get a local? This was hemorrhoid-induced VTAC? <laughs> hemorrhoid yes. Induced yes, her hemorrhoids caused her VTAC. Yeah. I, so the physician was passed a syringe. Hmm. Oh, oh. Not oh, and she was treated with nitroprusside, and she was treated with metoprolol. So she got, the physician was probably passed a syringe of ephedrine, would be my guess. Yeah. Or a one kind. to 1,000 dose of epinephrine. Of epi, okay. She got 30 milliliters. Wow. So she got 30 milligrams of epinephrine? One to one thousand. No, she got three million. This is why one to one thousand is dangerous terminology. We need to get rid of it. It's one mg per mil. Okay. Okay. She got thirty milligrams. Wow. So she was given thirty milligrams of epinephrine, tachycardic. They started on nitroprusside. They beta blocked her. That makes sense. They probably should have done labetalol, but I get why they did esmolol. Wrap it on, wrap it off. 
Yeah, nitroprusside was interesting. Phentolamine is probably what I would have gone with and not nitroprusside or something like a pure alpha blocker. So what they were doing was treating excessive vasoconstriction by attempting to veno and vasodilate. But the vasoconstriction is coming from alpha agonism. Yeah. So I would I would have probably tried to just block the alpha receptor. You know? But also her blood pressure wasn't like it yeah. was it wasn't it was like that not, it was like 180. No. Yeah. So I mean her diastolic was one one thirty, but yeah. I mean well, that's only that's only one value, right? Like we don't know where she was at throughout right. the whole thing. Like probably was higher. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought I just like read this a couple of times and I was horrified. Like, could you imagine just getting past the wrong syringe? Yeah. We've had so many um, you know, drug shortages lately that every vial is different than what you're no- normally right. used to seeing. Um and and like yeah, like I mean, it could happen to anybody. Like, how horrifying would that be if that was you? And then, ah, and then, like, how do you treat that? You know, like, I just thought that it was an interesting case. It's not that it does bring up, you know, iatrogenic toxicity or uh, um, hospital-induced toxins are very common, <laughs> unfortunately. I actually had a nurse. Um, we were going to put a hip back in in an elderly woman, um, and she pushed three hundred milligrams of propofol instead oh of 30 there was a oh tenfold dosing error oh she boy. didn't like read the um bottle or the concentrate and i was a resident so like i didn't pay attention that she had a 30 ml syringe in yeah. her hand. <laughs> um like, so this woman went apneic real fast like <laughs> um thankfully we bagged her out of it like we didn't even intubate her because it wore off so quickly um but but now anytime I do a conscious sedation, I like double check the bottles, I see what the nurse pulled up, I say the dosing out loud, I say the concentration. Um, and I think it just takes one of those to scar you for life. Yep. <laughs> yeah. This it can't be too safe in the emergency department. Great case. Interesting. Interesting. Still advocating for ventolamine, but I think or lumbar. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I get why they did Esmol, but they didn't have yeah. any alpha blocking. I don't know. I thought it was going to be um, maybe benzocaine methemoglobinemia worsened by nitroprusside because nitroprusside can cause <gasps> That would have been fun. That would have been wild. <laughs> but it wasn't. So that's it was okay. not. <laughs> um, okay. I have – you want to do one more? How do you, how do you feel? We can do one more. This one, I think, is a good one. Um, We have a 69-year-old female made a tea with leaves from a plant in her garden, thinking it was safe, and later developed nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. It's never safe, lady. (laughs) It's not for anyone. The best way to get sick from plants is to hyper-concentrate all the alkaloids in them into a solution and then drink it. Physical exam, blood pressure 153 over 76. Heart rate was 30 and irregular. Respiratory rate was 20. Oxygen, 93% on room air. Temperature, normal. Her potassium was 6.6. Oh, my God. She drank some foxglove. All right. We don't know that it was foxglove. But her digoxin level was 55.5 nanograms per milliliter. (laughs) Get out. Or she did 
Oleander. Yeah. Or Lily of the Valley. Or yep. or she looked at Toad. She could have had some Bufo. Bufo! Um, my favorite, I think my favorite cardiac glycoside containing tree or plant would be um, the pong pong tree because I love it. <laughs> you just like also known as the suicide tree, which is a little bit darker, but I <laughs> really like the pong. I like the first name better. Yeah, I agree. Did they use up like all of the digibine in the hospital? They don't say how much she got. She got atropine. She became more bradycardic, received increases doses of dopamine without improvement. Uh, the patient deteriorated, requiring ACLS and intubation. She got digifab. Her serum K increased to 8.2 despite treatment. Ooh. Pacemaker did not capture. CPR and repeated cardioversions were performed. She developed multiple episodes of torsades and died 24 hours after. Uh, that is crazy. So how much, here's my question to you, how much digifab would you give her? Well, they say after, right, if it's an empiric unknown ingestion, so I'm assuming that she probably came in like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they had the level back before they would do it. They right? didn't have the, yeah, they just gave it. It said it gave it empirically. So there's no way. If you have someone arrested. This is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But if you follow the adage of uh, level times weight divided by 100, yeah. She was a 70 kilo patient. We'll just assume. Just make her 100. The math is easier. All right. She then would she need, need 50 55 vials. vials. I mean, Jeez. that's insane. You're yeah, but gonna... if you think about it, that's how sick she was. Like, her potassium went up to oh, yeah. eight. Yeah, she was quite ill. She was quite ill. Um, and she had some of the textbook things, uh, irregular bradycardia, slow slow, uh, slow AFib, or AFib with slow ventricular rate is somewhat textbook, as well as bi- biventricular VTAC are kind of. I think there's some good stuff in this case. First, it talks about some of the initial symptoms you see with digitoxicity, which is, we always think cardiac, but nausea, vomiting are yeah. very common, mm-hmm. especially in chronic. I bet she saw yellow halos. Right. She probably had xanthopia or xanthopsia, whatever. You know, everything was yellow. She had halos. And in fact, if I ever, whenever I see patients, um, and even mechanized at Walgreens, counseling patients, I would always ask them if they saw any halos or vision changes when they pick up their ditch. This is a good way to tell, you know, are they, are maybe they're dosed too much or they, it's a good reminder for them. Um, and then her K was elevated. So DIG for the listeners, sodium potassium ATPase inhibitor, literally the most vital pump in all of our body. Uh, it's what keeps sodium outside your cell and potassium in your cell and establishes those gradients that are so important for life that we've talked about in past episodes. So if you inhibit that uh, sodium potassium ATPase pump, sodium starts to go in the cell and potassium starts to leave the cell. So you see hyperkalemia, uh, and there's more sodium in the cell, so they're more positive. They depolarize easier, uh, so you get increased automaticity of the vagus nerve, which can cause bradycardia. Pretty interesting. Would you treat her hyperkalemia with calcium? Yes. Are you Stone a believer? Stoneheart is a trith. <laughs> trith. To quote Frank Palachuk from UIC, it is a truth or a myth that has been propagated as a truth. I would like to point out that Matt also quoted Frank Palachuk on the last episode. So he's now been quoted. Because this Frank's famous. Love him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I think I think Stoneheart's got nothing really to stand on. There's not a lot of good data for that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that was great. Any talks? 
words of wisdom you want to leave with our listeners? Or just life wisdom? My words of wisdom are listen to your bad jujus. Pharmacokinetics are not toxicokinetics. <laughs> so, supportive care and benzos will get you through most except for aspirin poisoning. So know that one. Those are good. Those are all very good. I don't have any life advice. But. Oh, I will say this. I will say this, that if you're in academics or um, find yourself working too much, you should quit one thing and do a fun thing because I quit the IRB and signed up for piano lessons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and that got, rhymes. Quit one thing, do a fun thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it was very hard to do. It was really hard to do, but it was it was one of the best life decisions I've ever made. And I had my first piano recital in my Ooh. life as a forty-one year old last week. That's fantastic. But it's fun. Yeah. It's a that is great advice. Sage wisdom from our excellent guest. Dr. Jillian Thiebaud. Thank you for being on the show today. I think that'll wrap it up for today. No, honestly, thanks for being on. This was really fun. I had a good time. Of course. Some great thanks questions. for having me. Uh. <laughs> wow, Ryan. I really liked her on the show. Yeah, that was a great show, wasn't it? Hey, thanks for listening along, Toxo. And for everyone out there, that's going to wrap it up for today. Just giving a reminder that if you liked what you heard today, feel free to follow us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever podcast thing you like to listen to. We're there. Uh, and don't forget to follow the show on Twitter. We can follow the show at Lab Poison, myself at EM Poison Farm D, and Instagram at Talks underscore Talk. And we even have a Facebook page. Feel free to throw a like there or whatever it is people do on Facebook. And most importantly, don't forget to reach out to the show. TalksTalk1 at gmail.com. I'm going to play the clip to our next episode. If you think you know what's going on, I need you to send in your guesses so that we can talk about them in the beginning of the next episode. Toxo, would you mind playing the clip? A married couple in their 40s presents to the emergency department. Each patient is displaying signs of an inferior wall myocardial infarction, or heart attack, with ST segment elevations in the inferior leads of their EKG. They each have hypotension with systolic blood pressures in the 70s and bradycardia with heart rates in the 30s to 40s. The bradycardia and hypotension immediately resolves after atropine. They're taken to the cath lab to treat their suspected heart attack, but no heart attack can be found. No coronary arteries are blocked. The couple revealed that they had recently purchased a natural sweet tasting food that was touted as a sexual performance enhancer. The couple had been ingesting one teaspoon of the substance each day for the last week, but before presenting to the emergency department, they increased their dose to a full tablespoon, which led to them both showing false signs of a heart attack and severe life-threatening hypotension and bradycardia. That'll wrap it up. Don't forget to send your guesses. Thanks for listening today. Hope to see you next time. Talk so. Play us out. Information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye.